I'm going to jump into Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. And I would just want to start to uh, start by reading through the text. And it says here, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was great conflict. And he understood the word and had an understanding of the vision. In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I, left up, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronzed, bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were there with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves." So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, Understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from, this, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words." The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is happening to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute, and behold, one in the likeness of children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and I spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side, against these, except Michael, your prince. All right, so Daniel, he's setting the scene for us in the first verse. Uh, he says this is the third year of Cyrus, the great ruling, which would make this 537 B.C. And this whole text talks about a revelation 
that we really don't get into until next week. He's setting up this last revelation that he gets, and he doesn't talk about it at all. He just talks about how frightening it is. Um, and this is the, the last revelation written by Daniel to us concerning things to come from his perspective. But as we've kind of mentioned a lot before, uh, to us, some of these are actually just historical things that have already happened from our perspective, and some of these things are things yet to come. So we see how the, the Persian Empire, for instance, evolved and came to end with Alexander the Great, and in many ways the vision that is to come is painting a clearer picture uh, from the same vision that happens in chapter 8, where he's focusing on the Persians and Alexander the Great, and then from there he moves on to the end times. Now, God is allowing Daniel, this imperfect man, to be a part of his plan to reveal his truth to his people. The revealing truth, not only of what is about to happen, but also sort of revealing how in control God is in human history. And nothing comes as a surprise to him. He knew this hundreds, if not thousands of years before this would happen. And unlike the vision in chapter 8, where Daniel says in 8 I think it's verse 27, he says, I don't understand these things that God has revealed to me. He starts highlighting it there in, in chapter 10 that he finally understood the vision. He understood what the vision was about. So in short, I want to dwell on this hard call of Daniel and our God who qualifies the call. Uh, we see in verse 2 that Daniel, he's been fasting and praying, and after three weeks, of not anointing himself with oil, which is difficult for all of us, right? <laughs> Who in here is anointing himself with oil every day? I guess beard oil, does that count? Uh, but it's not something that we do a whole lot today, but it's to make you look fresh, to make you look better. He's not eating lavish meals such as wine or meat. He's fasting these things, he's, he's skipping these things, and that's when he gets this vision. Now, this is a practice that has been largely forgotten by the, by the Western church a lot. We, we don't do a whole lot of fasting and praying. Uh, especially, I find it interesting when Jesus is talking about his disciples and the Pharisees come to them and he says, why aren't your disciples fasting and, and praying like us? And he says, well, the bridegroom is with them. When I leave, they will start fasting and praying. And here we are. <laughs> he is no longer walking here among us bodily and I, I start to stop every time I read about fasting in the Bible, and I was like, I get convicted over, man, why, why don't we do more of this? And fasting is an interesting topic in and of itself. Now, he was mourning over the state of his country. And as we read the pr previous chapter, he was praying for God to restore the nation of Israel, to bring uh, the Jewish people out of captivity into the nation again, and he, that's what he was praying for. And this hit me really hard this week as I was stopping and, and, and asking myself questions from the text, um, especially reading the text previous week and just seeing his heart for his people, how he wanted his people to, to get the, the answer of God's you know, mercy and, and grace upon them. And I, I stopped and asked myself this question, have I pleaded with God in such a way for, for my country, for my people? Have I stood in the gap to, to pray for Iceland as Daniel is praying for Israel? Have I pleaded on behalf of my people for the work of God to restore hearts and souls, to, to meet the poor and the needy, to meet the suffering in society, to, for God to allow his ways to become 
more apparent among us. Now, I have a feeling that many Christians will say, well, someone else is doing that. Someone else is praying. Someone else has got a calling for that. But I look around us in Iceland, and I don't see a whole lot of people that are good candidates for just spending their days in prayer for this country. And I ask myself, can we afford to think that? Can we afford to read the book of Daniel and be a little convicted over how little we pray for our country and still think "Ah, someone else is probably thinking the same thing and they're actually doing something about it? But when I see how small the Christian community is in Iceland, I'm like, I don't have, I don't have the ability to trust that someone else is doing this. So when I hear the conviction of God, when I read the word, and when we hear the convictions of God through various different words that we read and the spirit working in us, I think we really need to heed that. Because a lot of people, for instance, they see churches that are imperfect. I'm talking about other churches outside of ourselves. Because we're the only perfect one here in Iceland. Uh, No, people... I mean, there's this mentality that you go and you sort of church shop, right? That's, that's an actual thing that pastors talk about in the U.S., you church shop. They have church shoppers come in and they ask you, well, how many programs do you have for my kids? Do you have a singles ministry? You know, whatever. And, and they sort of go to the next church. They give the music sort of a seven out of ten. And, and the preacher could throw in a couple of more jokes and that type of stuff. And you shop around for churches. Well, here, I think... I got convicted over this a long time ago. It's like when I was complaining a lot about sort of churches in Iceland, in my church particularly, it's like, I need, someone needs to fix this. And the, the thing was always, someone needs to fix this. <laughs> someone else should do something about this instead of me realizing that maybe God is putting a burden on me because I'm supposed to do something about it. Maybe he wants to use me as a tool. So if you feel burdened, for instance, to pray for your country, then please don't say, I'm sure someone else is doing this. Even if someone else is doing this, that burden shouldn't be ignored. And so when I was reading this text, I was was grappling with these ideas, being convicted over my own lack of prayer and pleading for for God to transform this country. Uh, And not only is it's Daniel, he's praying and pleading, he's taking a stance, he's risking his own life. Like we're almost through the book of Daniel. He's been in the lion's den and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Abednego? You Americans, you pronounce things weird. Or you English speakers. Um, Abednego, yeah. Like they're, They're not just there to sort of theoretically say yes and amen to some things. They're there saying like, oh, there's a fire in front of us. Sure, we will worship God. He can save us from the fire or he can let us die. We're still going to worship him. We're not going to bow down to your false gods. We're not going to sacrifice to them. So this, this is Daniel. And he's not just taking sort of a, a theoretical stance. He's like risking his life and limb. And he, he's praying. And you remember the reason why he's thrown into the lion's den is because he refuses to stop praying. And I'm heartbroken so often over the fact that so many churches and so many Christians have seemingly forgot about uh, the seriousness of what we do. You know, the eternal torment of hell, for instance. We are so busy focusing on so many things, 
forgetting our mission to share the good news and make disciples. That we are willing to engage in political debates and arguments within the church, getting lost in the busyness of life, seemingly forgetting that every day a soul is dying and meeting its maker without any hope. We need more people like Daniel to rise up with a heart and love for his country and the people in it to pray and stand for truth no matter the cost. But Daniel, after fasting for three weeks, he sees a vision of a man clothed in linen. And over, over and over again in all this text, you see sort of the underlining theme that he's trying to explain. He's always underlining the fact that he looks like a man. He looks like a human. What's interesting, you remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, <laughs> Abednego were thrown into the fire. What, is, what, what do they say? They're, There's another guy in there. And he looks, what is, what is the word that he used? Like the children of the son of man? Forgot exactly what the word is, but it's something about son of man. Um, and that's earlier in this book. And here he is again and again in this chapter trying to underline the fact that this, this man, this angelic figure that's man but still more than a man is still looks like a human, looks like son of man. Um, he's doing his best to describe his glory with things that we know to explain things that we have never seen before. Like, I, I try to imagine it this way. Can you imagine if you saw a color that no other person in the world had ever seen? And now you had the mission to try to describe that color to other people without looking like you've lost your mind. <laughs> like, how would you describe something that's never been seen in this world before? You try to grasp, you know, maybe like try to throw things in there to try to get close to what you're trying to say. But it would be an impossible task to, to describe something that no one has ever seen before to them by using things that is around us. Now he's doing his best to try to describe what he's seeing, the glory that he sees. Um, and you see this all over the scripture. For instance, his voice. This, this figure, he comes and he speaks. And it says his, his voice is like multitudes speaking at once. Like, what, what is he trying to explain? How many of us, when we read, you know, these different stones, you know, like, and his you know, face was like the barrel, a, a barrel. And you're like, ah, oh, sure, okay, that's something, I guess. And you keep reading, right? <laughs> and it, often we don't stop and we don't know what this stone is, what he's trying to explain to us. But what, what, what is he trying to explain to us when he says, when he speaks, it's like multitudes are speaking. Imagine 10,000 people speaking the same thing at the same time. Something weird with his voice. You see this over and over again in, in Scripture and in, in Revelation and Ezekiel and here in Daniel, where people also say his voice is like running waters. And you're like, you imagine running waters like a roaring river. And you try to imagine multitudes, and you're like, what are they trying to say with these, with these things? We have no idea what lies in store for us when we meet our maker. We have no idea of the eternal glories we will get to see, that we will get to experience and touch. He says his body is like barrel, and we have no idea what that means. <laughs> and for most of us, we just continue on reading. Okay, I guess that's something. Uh, his body is like some kind of material. But I googled barrel, 
to get some pictures of it. And uh, basically, to describe it to you in layman's terms, it's like Superman's kryptonite. It kind of looks like that. Um, so if, if you can imagine, it's sort of a greenish stone, like a see-through thing. And, and he's trying to explain to us his body is like this see-through stone. He's trying to find something around him that can explain what he... Then he goes on to say, he's got gold around his waist, waist. his face appears as a lightning. Can you imagine what he's trying to say? His face, yes, his face appears like a lightning. What is he trying to say? Is he talking about the brightness of the lightning? Uh, and the hands and the feet like gleaming bronze and eyes like torches and a voice that sounds like 10,000 speak, people speaking at the same time. What is, what is Daniel seeing? He's trying to describe the glory of this one individual with things that we know. Like, what in the world does it look like when your face appears like a lightning? We can only imagine. And one of these days... Our faith, our imagination of what will be, will become something we know. And not just something that we can try to imagine in our mind. But one of these days, we will see these things. And we will finally get, I get what Daniel was trying to say with Beryl. <laughs> I get what he was trying to say with a face like lightning. And seeing this, he falls on his face. Like, I don't know if you noticed this when we read the text over and over again. He's underlining this, this word, terror, in there. They were all terrified. I was shaking in terror. The, the guys that were with him didn't see a vision, but they ran away in terror. Now, I would walk around the U.S. Uh, and, and Walmarts, of course. If you're in the U.S., you have to go to a Walmart. Uh, <laughs> not me. <laughs> And you'd see these sort of book corners there. And, and there are these books. Some of them are sort of Christian-leaning books. Like, there's a lot of books about people dying and going to hell for 29 minutes or something like that. Like, afterlife tourism kind of. Like, I don't know what to call this genre, except for afterlife tourism. There's this guy, uh, this kid that died. I don't know if he died, but he apparently something happened, and he went to heaven, and he met the Holy Spirit and came back and now there's a movie about it. A, a boy goes to heaven. Anyways, there's, you know, I, I've read some of these things. I'm not very interested in it because first of all, I don't see a whole lot of it in scripture. I see the apostle Paul saying, hey, I, I went to the third heavens and what does he say when he's asked about it? You don't need to know. I'm not going to say anything about what I saw. But you read these books and, you know, the, the guy is trying to describe to you that... <laughs> That the Holy Spirit is bluish looking and fluffy. It's kind of like the spirit in Aladdin or whatever. And you're like, uh, and you read this and you read the, the text that we're talking about and how often he underlines the word terror in there. Like I was terrified. He's a grown man and he's like, the angel came and I'm in absolute terror. And it seems like it's a sort of first protocol for the angels when they appear to human like the shepherds in the field. Don't be afraid. Every time they, they get there, don't be afraid. Don't freak out. Uh, we're here to give you a message. We're messengers. And I just sort of think about all the kind of stuff that we attribute to, to uh, you know, visions and so on and so forth. And I'm like, 
first of all, I'm a pretty skeptical guy by nature. I, I, I don't want to take everything on face value. Uh, but it kind of scares me. When people are so quick to be demanding uh, of God or claiming his name to experiences that seem to leave, um, leave them not with an impression of being in more in awe and wonder of who God is and how glorious he is. This vision, it messes Daniel up. This is why I'm extremely skeptical when people approach me with supposed visions from God. They don't seem to have the same effect as the visions I see in the Bible. Like you read this in verse 9. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. I think he's trying to say, I passed out in terror. I think that that's what the verse is about. I saw his face and I passed out in terror. Because who goes to sleep after meeting an angel with his face to the ground? Um, and then people have claimed the following verses. Like there's a lot of verses in there that we were, that we were dealing with that we read over. Most of them you would, you would find out to be very easy verses if you read them in context. But there's some interesting things that people have used in these verses to have some interesting ideas about how God works. For instance, um, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Okay, what do you guys think that he's talking about in that verse? He's scared out of his mind, right? <laughs> he's over and over again underlined the fact that he's scared out of his mind. Do you know how other people use that verse? In services, we're supposed to shake on the ground. We're supposed to, you know, shake and, and kind of go, go all over. We're going to fall over. And, and if, if you go to very charismatic services, you see people laying on the ground and shaking and rolling and so on and so forth. And they use a verse like this. On, and behold, you know, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees. And I'm like, it's not what the, that's not what the verse is about. That's not what Daniel is talking about. He's talking about being terrified over this angel coming and appearing to him. Now, this is not saying that he was on the ground uncontrollably shaking. It's describing in context the terror that he's experiencing. And in verse 12, God says that due to, due to the faithfulness of Daniel, he gets to receive the vision and the call of God on his life. And just like companies, when they hand you extra responsibilities, extra uh, work, uh, extra jobs to take care of and so on and so forth like we realize that it's not because they hate us we realize that most of the time when they hand you more responsibilities more jobs or projects to oversee it's because you've done a great job and usually they reward you for for doing a good job uh, by giving you these responsibilities and often giving you more uh, a status within the company and more pay and so on and so forth and it seems to be the same with God, he's looking for him, he's seeing him, he's seeing what he is doing with the visions that he gets. And actually me and Svalo were talking about it yesterday. You know, those who are faithful in the small will be granted larger things. And so God is looking at Daniel, he's seeing how faithful he is with the things that he has, and he gives him extra. And it's a tough call. It's a tough thing that he gets. The project is very big. You see him over and over, over and over again saying, man, I'm done. I have no energy left in me. I am just totally out of it. 
So God is saying to Daniel, because of your faithfulness, I've decided to give this to you. Because of his humility and your, your prayers, which I've heard, I've come to you with this. And I'd say, careful what you wish for, because God will, well, he, God, he hears you. God hears your prayers. And here's a prayer I prayed a long time ago and God answered, and I, and I need to pray more. And I, I was hoping that you would join me in this. Um, just kind of following my conversions, I would pray over and over again, God, would you, would you let me see my country through your eyes? Would you allow me to love others as you love? And would you allow my heart to be broken over the things that breaks your heart? And it's a dangerous prayer because God has in my life absolutely given me a sort of a small taste of this uh, just after my conversion. I remember months where I absolutely, I was just heartbroken all the time. And that may sound very miserable to you. <laughs> I realize that. But experiencing that has been one of the most cherished moments of my life. Uh, like I would literally take bathroom breaks at my work to just sit on the toilet and cry. I would go after work and sit in my car and cry. On the outside, I probably looked miserable. But there was something in that moment where my soul was refreshed. And actually, when I look over almost every sort of difficult moment of my life, I, I remember the difficulty, I remember the hurt, and I remember the pain, but I also remember this sort of relationship and community with God that I had never really had before that moment. And I found it in that moment. And when you, like during this time, I was trying to explain this to my wife. She, she, she will tell you I, I looked clinically depressed at this point, And she didn't know what to do. And uh, I was trying to explain what I was feeling. <laughs> and you really can't. And you're trying to explain it to other people and you really can't. So you realize that the only option that you have is you got God who understands what you are. You got God who sees your emotions. He sees what's going on in your heart. When you can't express it in words, the sorrow that you feel, the hurt that you feel, you got him. And so oftentimes through the toughest trials of our lives, we can find ourselves in the most sort of cherished moments of communion with God because he is the only one who truly gets what's going on in our mind and our hearts. And so there, God sees Daniel and he gives him this glimpse into the spiritual realm in verse 13. There's this fight going on. We don't get to, to say, uh, we don't get who's, who's saying this part. Uh, is it the man figure? Is it Gabriel that, that he mentioned before? We don't know. But what is explained is that there's this battle going on. There's this prince of Persia. And there's, uh, there's Michael, who's the prince of, of Israel. And there's this battle between this demonic figures and the angels going on in the heavenly realms. And like he mentions the prince of Persia, this ungodly and demonic angel is fighting against the will of God over Persia. And in the end of verse 21, Michael is referred to as the prince of Israel. And you see elsewhere in scripture, these, these angels and demons are fighting over nations as if they're not really uh, sort of des designated to specific individuals, but also nations as a whole. And I find that very interesting because it's interesting when you come here and you talk with people about spiritual matters, it's a lot like people are all thinking very along similar lines. 
I, I wonder what kind of fight is happening over our country in the spiritual realm. And what I hate is when people talk about the spiritual realm, it's a lot of made-up stuff that's not got no basis in Scripture. But here in verse 13, we see a glimpse into the spiritual realm, and it's describing this battle, this prince of Persia fighting against Michael, the archangel. And I just wonder what kind of battle is waging over Iceland. How is it that this apathy that you feel with people, this sort of just dismissive attitude about anything spiritual or, or, or anything related to Christianity, maybe. Uh, how is it that it's so prevalent in our society? How is it that so many people share this same kind of attitude? How is it that it's taken such a strong hold of people here? That you feel this urge to share eternal truths with people and you're, you're met with, you're not met with punches or hatred, you're just met with a, Eh, you know, I don't really care. I don't, let me just move on with my life and do what practically works for me and you do your thing. And our job is like Daniel, praying for the souls of Icelanders to come to move in mighty, for God to move in mighty ways and to have our eyes open to how we can be partakers of sharing the gospel here. There's also a, a point here that I'd like to say about the angels it's sort of a deviation from the whole message, but um, any of you encountered Jehovah's Witnesses before? Uh, any of you know what they believe? Any of you know what they believe about Michael, the archangel? No one? Yeah? Yeah, he's Jesus Christ. He's the same guy. Uh, so they believe Jesus Christ is not uh, the God. He's a created being. He's the first created being. He's the, the highest created being. They're really tough people to talk to because they got their own translation of the Bible written by people that don't know Hebrew or Greek, apparently. Uh, so they sort of know as much as me in the original languages and they made their own Bibles called the New World Translation. Um, and so they, they've done a lot. For instance, John 1, it's a chapter just obviously talking about Jesus being God. It's changed in their Bible. And so it's very difficult because they don't want to go onto your Bible because that's corrupted. And uh, they want to stick to theirs, and it's very difficult having a conversation. But one of the things I noticed in their translation, when it came to Daniel chapter 10, because Michael, he's not just supposed to be uh, a archangel. They believe there's only one archangel. He's the chief prince. He's the, he's the first uh, uh, created being. He is the greatest created being. And one, uh, the verses there that might be applicable to you, and let me underline this. I'm not trying to give you ammo so that you can hit them over the head with this, right? Because we're supposed to deliver in grace and truth. But I'm saying this could be a, a good talking point with someone who's a Jehovah's Witness. Why does Daniel 10 verse 13 uh, say that Michael is one of the chief princes if they believe that he is the only chief prince? And there it's in plural. Uh, so that could get you down a rabbit hole with a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, that, that's a good verse to start with if they ever knock at your door uh, to try to get their opinion about Daniel 10, 13. Now, as we go into 15 to 21, we're exposed to Daniel being called to this vision that he's about to go into and the vision of seeing how the rest of history will pan out. Can you imagine this? Because it's sometimes hard to imagine because we're just reading the text. We don't full, feel the full weight of what we're reading He's seeing 
stuff that's about to go down in human history. Can you imagine the horrors that he's about to see? I mean, he's seen the last 2,500 years and the horrors that take place, the sieges that take place over cities and the people are starved to death and they start to eat their own kids. He's starting to see people in, in, uh, in battles doing horrific things to each other. And not just for one event, not just for one battle. He's about to see human history unfold in front of him. He's about to see the hatred, the torture, the destruction, and what the full effect of sin will bring to human history and how it will play out all in one sitting. He's not just going through one tragic moment of having someone loved one die or something like that. He's seen all of these tragic moments through all of human history in front of him in one sitting. So feel the weight of that. Feel the horror. And imagine just how messed up we can be after just one horrific incident. After seeing, you know, one thing go wrong, we can have post-traumatic stress disorder. Like people were wondering, uh, people are, you know, you don't even have to have a death or anything like that. It's just a traumatic experience, and you can have post-traumatic stress disorder. And here Daniel, he's seeing all of human history unfold. No sugarcoating involved. But Daniel is not just about to have his eyes open to one tragedy, but an unfolding tragedy. And in verse 16 and 17, he describes how depleted he is of all of his strength. He has nothing left to give. He doesn't have the strength to talk about this, to write about this, even to stand up. This vision has literally crushed every ounce of strength that Daniel had out of him. This is a heavy call for Daniel to bear. And remember, it's not because God despised him. It's not because he wanted to get back at him. It's because he found him faithful. He found him trustworthy. And so he allows him to see the horror of human history unfold in front of him, and he feels crushed by this. You imagine him in that situation, and someone coming along and saying, Hey, Daniel, God doesn't give you more than you can bear. Get up, buddy. You know, Because that's what we like to do sometimes. We like to come in, and sometimes well-meaning, just say to someone who's grieving, who's crushed, Hey, you can do this, you know, everything works together for the good of those who love him. Come on, you know, move along. And we hear this sentence over and over again. God will never give you more than you can handle. But we read this and ask, didn't he do that here? It seems that he can't handle more. It seems that he can't go on. It seems so to me, but I, I think verse 18 gives us hope for when we feel that way that we can't trust, that, that we can't do this anymore. We have weak shoulders and, and the burden that we're supposed to carry are heavy. The one who appeared like a man, he touched him. And through him, he received power to continue on with his ministry. So in one sense, I guess you could say, God will never give you more than you can handle. Because when you can't handle it, he is the one who gives you strength. And in another sense, you can say, God can crush you with things so that you are fully reliant on his strength and his grace and his mercy. It's 
kind of reminds me of the woman with a blood issue when she came and she saw Jesus walking around and she thought to herself, if I only touch the hem of his, his rope, I'll be, I'll be healed. And he touched, she touched the hem of his rope and she was healed and he felt power leave him. It's kind of there. He, this man figure walks up and he touches Daniel and he has strength to go on to fulfill his ministry. So it may very well be that God gives you a call that is far too great for your weak shoulders to carry. But then that causes us to be fully reliant on the grace and mercy and strength of God. And a theme throughout scripture is this, that God doesn't just call people, he qualifies the called. He makes you qualified for the job, not because of your own greatness, not because of your self-importance, but rather because these are people willing to rely on God for grace and strength. You see this everywhere in Scripture. The question is, will any of us ever be at a place where we find ourselves fully reliant on the grace and strength of God? Because it's really easy to keep it safe. And as one person said, said, we don't fully realize that God is all we need, until we find ourselves in a situation that God is all we have. And I wonder how many of us will ever experience the hardship of that, but also the cherished moment of never feeling more in communion with God than just now, because you can't rely, you, you can't find a source of strength anywhere else but Him. And this is not me just sort of reading into the text or making the Bible, trying to say what I wanted to say, this is, this is everywhere in Scripture. When we are weak, he is strong. Right? When Paul says, I've prayed three times for him to take this thorn out of my flesh, and he has said, my grace is sufficient for you. This is God working through Gideon to defeat an enemy of God's people. Remember Gideon? It's like He comes to him, and he's like, I belong to the weakest tribe of all of Israel, and I'm the weakest person in the weakest tribe, and you're going to be using me as a hero. This is God calling, stammering Moses to be the mouthpiece of God to Egypt. This is in the Great Commission as well. We read it every week. And we, we often focus as people who are obsessed with just doing a to-do list on the, oh, baptize people, you know, teach them to follow their commands. But what does he say in the beginning? He says, all authority has been given to me. Go therefore. And then... He ends the sentence after he gives the mission to, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he's not only calling us to this mission, he's qualifying us as we go on to this mission. He is the source of our strength. This is Jesus telling his disciples to not be fearful when they are persecuted by people in, in positions and in power because the Holy Spirit will give them the words that they need to say right in that moment. And brothers and sisters, I hope you realize that the creator and sustainer of the universe is on our side. If you are a son or daughter of God, he is with us in this. His spirit is in us. The power that sustains creation is within us. And you may very well find yourself in circumstances and situations where you feel like your weak shoulders cannot bear this burden. 
well, then it's time to fully rely on the grace and strength of God. Because our God not only calls us, but he qualifies us for the call for his ultimate praise. And I pray that we as a church, that we pick up this burden to imitate Daniel and his fervent fasting and praying and pleading for his people. Let us be defined by the love for our fellow countrymen to be filled with desire to see them come to faith, to grow in faith, and to share in the eternal glories with us, to, to be there with us when we finally figure out what Daniel means when his face appears like lightning. That's my hope. God doesn't just give you the call. He's the one who makes you qualified for it. So through the broken body of Jesus Christ, through his shed blood on our behalf, we have been justified. We are being sanctified in us dwells the Holy Spirit of God, the great comforter that we need in every trial and circumstance. Now let's be faithful in the mission in front of us as we dwell on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, as we look back to the cross and his mission to redeem us through his blood and his broken body. So what we do every week is we do communion. We do what Jesus did with his disciples, which is he broke bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he shared wine with them and they said, this is my, this is my blood uh, shared for you, the new covenant in my name. It's to remind us of what he has done for us, to get us to a place where we can realize that if he's not spared his only son, to get us where we are today, we can be fully reliant on him. We can fully trust that he has our good in mind. And so it may not look the same way as we imagine it right now. Like I imagine the apostles. I imagine Peter not being very excited about how his life ended. I imagine the apostle Paul. You, know, you read 2 Timothy. It's his last letter written from prison before he's beheaded for his faith. That's why, that's why it really bothers me when people say that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. It's not the safest. It's the best. It's the best because no matter if I lose my head, I will be with him forever. No matter what happens, no matter what the cost, we will be with him forever. He is my treasure. And the kingdom of heaven is like the parable Jesus said. It's like a man finding a treasure in the field and he hides the treasure and he sells everything that he has to, to get that field and he sells everything that he has with joy because he realizes that no matter what he has to sell, no matter what he has to get rid of, no matter what he has to lose in from his life, nothing is more worth, uh, bears more worth than the treasure in that field. And so he's willing to sacrifice anything and everything for that treasure. And Jesus is saying to us, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so I hope that we fully realize that. If you are a Christian brother and sister in here today, if you've confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you said, I'm going to follow him in my life, uh, I'm going to fully rely on him as my Savior and not try to justify myself with my good works, but rather I look to the cross and therefore I am driven to love well, to show grace to others, not to earn my righteousness, but rather because he has given me righteousness. If you're in here and you've made that confession, and please join us as we, uh, as we partake of this.